But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by a man who needs no introduction. He's brave, he's free, he's causing mischief from sea to shining sea. It's Jason Wilson, our correspondent from Biden's America. How are you, Jason? I'm going well. Better than Biden's America, probably. I guess just to begin with, Jason, CPAC Australia is coming up. Uh, oh, aren't you lucky? We're also lucky. One, Andy Fleming has been repeatedly commenting upon the fact that one of their primary sponsors is Give, Send, Go, who, amongst other things, fundraise for a group who have multiple members in prison currently on terrorism charges, the National Socialist Network. Does that strike you as a little odd? <laughs> I, I, so are you saying to me that they're like, are they like, like a gold sponsor on the, on the, on the literature or whatever, or are, 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 are they fundraising on that platform? I think Gives and, Gives and Go, a gold sponsor of CPAC. Uh, An actual name sponsor. Wow. I, yeah. That's, wow. I mean, I, I wonder if that's, if that's a good advertising move for them. I mean, look, Gives and Go, I've done some reporting on their multiple data breaches because websites are hard, I guess. It's not just, yeah, the National Socialist Network. I did see some of Andy's tweets about that, and it's astounding that Something called the National Socialist Networks Network is acceptable as a partner, effectively, to this organization because Gibson Go are collecting a percentage of whatever they raise. But Gibson Go has never been particularly choosy about who they allow to raise funds on their website. They try and present themselves as a primarily a, a, a Christian, almost faith-oriented website, but I mean, on the down low, I think they're all, their marketing has always been, their pitch has always been, well, if you've been banned from other online fundraising platforms, you'll be fine here. And when those in those breaches, we saw that people got mad with me because I, I revealed that a bunch of cops and first responders had donated to Kyle Rittenhouse. This was before Kyle's trial was completed. But like stuff like that, the Proud Boys did a lot of fundraising on there ahead of J6, the Canadian trucker convoy. I mean, there's just, there's just doesn't seem to be much of a filter there, right? And and Andy is right to raise the question about the National Socialist Network. I mean, I, I wonder, though, if a group's outside the United States and uh, regulators or whatever the powers that be in the United States don't know or care about that, gives and go, we've got very few... Uh, incentives to to stop them fundraising and all the incentives in the world to allow them to continue. What what are the what are the lad fundraising for? Is, is it just just because they just want some money, or is there? A, uh, I think they're going various, to hide or something. Various legal troubles. Oh yeah, right. So that's well, that's a classic, right? You go on there and 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 try to raise money for your for, for your inevitable court battles. And I, some proud boys 
did that. So, yeah, I mean. I, um, I should add that the, it's, the co-founders it's, are speaking at CPAC as well. Okay. Well, that's, that's, again, that's something to look forward to. I mean, CPAC now, I mean, let's be clear. CPAC was always, when, when CPAC started, it was, it was the, the, the right flank of the permissible. You know what I'm saying? Like when it first started, it was, it was sort of right wing Republican. But now, it, it, subsequently, it's found itself outflanked on the right by things like whatever Nick Fuentes is up to and, and various more explicitly white nationalist or far right groups who now get an audience among Republicans, the events that they held. And I feel like CPAC has drifted farther to the right and they've made all of these overtures like the, the, the Hungary event that they now have every year. They have an event in Hungary and that's helped to make Orban this figure of, what's the word? It's, it's made Orban into a, an icon of the American right, even though he, he runs a, a, a frankly illiberal, an admittedly illiberal, uh, quite authoritarian and quite anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant government, right? But I mean, it's comical in Australia because I, I I'm not saying that the far right has no purchase in Australia. That's obvi- obviously not true. But the quality of the far right media figures in Australia is a little less impressive <laughs> than than in the United States. And when like it, Mundine's running it, right? Warren Mundine's He's the, running the, the show chairman, the right? Or the chairperson of the yeah, yeah. I mean, pe- people like that. It, it's it's funny that the, uh, Australian again in the sphere of the permissible people who are on Sky News and stuff, which are the people who show up to speak at this thing, right? They're not having. They're not yet having members of the National Socialist Network speak there. Um, well, not quite, although I did notice one person who was slated to speak and seems to have, as of the time of recording on Tuesday morning, has quietly disappeared from the website was uh, Elijah Schaefer, who oh, no was kidding. at J6, I believe, Yeah, uh, has recently been tweeting things like, polls like, which of these places would you feel safest to live in? Black American city, African country, Washington, D.C., or Nazi Germany? Of course, Twitter or X users have replied they would feel safest living in Nazi Germany, 60.9%. And he's also recently had neo-Nazis on his mildly offensive or slightly offensive, whatever it's called, video podcast. Elijah Schaefer also was was bounced from a job at The Blaze for alleged or reported sexual harassment of of colleagues as well, right? So, and I mean... So I mean I'm surprised that he was ever on the on the program. Was there any specific protest about him being there, or did did someone just realise the clerical error that they made? I'm not. I don't think anyone's really kicked up a fuss about it yet. <laughs> I see. I I mean I see Matt Schlapp, who's the the CPAC supremo. The, what's his name from the WWF? Um, Vince McMahon. <laughs> yeah, he's like Matt's the Vince McMahon of 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 CPAC, and. Uh, He's got a scandal, a, a sexually related scandal happening in the background too, right? Which is that he allegedly assaulted one of Herschel Walker's campaign workers last October. And that caused or gave some people permission to not show up at CPAC in the United States this year. So this this is a very strange and discreditable it's a discreditable, discreditable association for anyone to have, I would have think, but I would have thought. But like, now that I'm looking at the speakers list, the likes of Barnaby Joyce and Ted O'Brien and 
Moira Deeming. I mean, these people are just desperate for any legitimacy, any attention, any connection to anything that might be might appear successful. Pauline Hanson, goodness me. What John Anderson? I, I've I've heard John Anderson has become a little bit of a what what is the word an alternative media star of in his own right or at his own level? Is that correct? I mean, he's got this podcast that's pretty that's pretty out there, right? Is that correct? Am I right in saying that? No, I've not <laughs> had the pleasure of listening to Mr. Anderson on his podcast, but I suppose he'd be one of a number of I guess superannuated conservative MPs who've decided to reinvent themselves as podcast guys or uh, something of that sort? Yeah, okay. I mean, why not? Let me, let me fill you in. So the, the, the conversation is called John Anderson Conversations. The podcast is called John Anderson Conversations. And if I recall correctly, Mr. Anderson was himself an early example of a Christian right figure in Australia when that position couldn't necessarily speak its name as easily, but he was definitely – on the religious conservative side, and I see that some of the conversations he's had. So this March, he had a conversation with Doug Wilson, Douglas Wilson, who runs Christ Church out in Moscow, Idaho, who I've done some reporting on, who's very much a theocratically inclined individual who who is, is from that strain of very conservative Presbyterianism that where like he's not necessarily going to engage with national politics. He's just waiting around for, for the collapse and, 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 and they'll take over and administer everything under godly law. He's had a Yor, Yor Hazoni on, who's like, I think he's like a national conservative type uh, figure here in the United States. He's had, yeah, a bunch of pretty weird... Melanie Phillips, she was a Daily Mail columnist for a long time. Again, anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant. Steve Pinker. <laughs> but yeah, it's like this weird collection of sort of pretty dank Christian right types for the most part. He he had a conversation with Zuby, the the anti-vax rapper. Yeah. So it's it's free thinking, obviously. <laughs> and he he ha- as long as he's not cancelled off Apple Podcasts, I guess he's going to keep doing that. Like he's the latest one was published on the 10th. So yeah, it's I mean I guess I feel like two things are true in Australia. One is that conservatives here, there's something to it when they rail against the liberal media to to an extent, right? Like, I mean, in the sense that the New York Times and CNN and the LA Times, like the big metro newspapers and a whole bunch of broadcasters are not so much ideologically progressive, but they're at least trying to stake out some centre ground, right? And maybe some of them, it's like a millimetre left of centre just because, for the most part, because that's where they're led commercially, right? And things like NPR are trying to be dead centre, at least in relation to their audience and, and all that stuff. And so there is like some substantial thing that you can call the liberal media. Now, that's to the extent that that exists in Australia, it's both smaller in size and proportionally much smaller and and conservative right-wing outlets are much more sort of dominant and hegemonic in Australia. So they don't have as much to rail against and there's probably not quite the audience for any of this stuff in Australia uh, that hasn't already been taken care of by the tabloid, the, the, the metro tabloids, right? Like the Murdoch papers. And so it's like, they're in this weird space where Cam Wilson did some reporting a year or two back and, and I followed up a little on that where... 
he was able to demonstrate that really what Sky News is, their business model effectively now is to make these, let's say, intemperate <laughs> videos and post them on YouTube. And in fact, the, 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 the greater part of their audience is overseas, a lot of people in the United States. And so these folks seem a little more, well, I don't know. Am, am, am I off beam here? I mean, do, the, do these folks seem a little more pathetic and marginal in Australia itself, and and is some of this perhaps for the benefit of overseas, the, the overseas audiences that they perhaps do have, which are maybe in the United States where where there's a, a Christian right or a far right audience that's much bigger and more viable and sustainable or something. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I think in terms of the media, that's true. I mean. It, it, I suppose some have argued in the past that it makes sense for media in a country like Australia, United States, to have a liberal bias for other reasons, uh, principally commercial and so on. I guess the thing I wonder about in this context with these sorts of figures is it seems to be the case that there's a, a battle going on for control of the Liberal National Party, the coalition, and so some of what's being played out on the stage in at CPAC and elsewhere is, is this clash between Liberals and Conservatives. And in that sense, it hasn't progressed as far as it has in the United States where the Republicans are essentially a Trumpist project, it seems. So, so they have some consequence, but maybe more in terms of just the, the, the opposition to Labor and the Greens and what that consists of. And it's unclear to me if the, the path that's being pursued of this quite reactionary form of politics is going to succeed in the end. But certainly if you look at, I guess, when was it? It was only a few years ago that Nine gobbled up Fairfax and I think it's it's declined <laughs> in the sense that it's becoming more illiberal in many ways or at least certainly less popular and the liberal media space has been occupied by publications like The Guardian and so on, which have... I think a smaller audience in some ways and a national one, but represent those kinds of liberal or left liberal views much more effectively than the Age or the Sydney Morning Herald or what have you. So, mm. but certainly I don't know. I mean, there's also still, I guess, a struggle over to develop some grassroots movement outside of the churches. I mean, maybe that will eventuate. And I think there's experimentation going on as to identifying those issues mostly imported from the United States, that are going to galvanise the population at the ballot box and, and on the streets and generally. So I think it's in a, my reading is it's in a certain state of flux, but, yeah, I don't disagree with what you said. Yeah, I mean, I think also in Australia there's a dynamic here that I think we've discussed before on this show where between conservative media in the here in the United States, which which tends to attack congressional Republicans, especially le leadership from the right, right, in an, in an effort to to drag them right and to stop them compromising with, with Democrats on anything. And also because, oh, whatever, that's show business, right? And they're, they've got a lot of influence over the, the kinds of people who vote in Republican primaries. And so that means that a lot of primaries just become people trying to outflank each other on the right, which obviously affects who gets elected, which in turn affects how th – that has a big effect on how how 
that that effectively makes any representative body more dysfunctional than it already is, and 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 that that d- dynamic feeds itself, and and hence we get Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene not only being elected to Congress, which would have been obviously fruitcakes have always been elected to Congress, but like someone like her being elected maybe uh, was conceivable. 10 years ago, but for her to af- to effectively be in a leadership position and closely allied to Congress's, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, because she helped him out in his battle to become Speaker of the House against the right-wing revolt. For that to all be in place is, yeah, that's sort of new territory, but, but it doesn't seem like, it seems like that's only heading in one direction. <laughs> like there's going to be more folks like her elected and and the Republican Party is... The Republican Party of old, the Paul Ryan, Koch brothers, Republican Party has basically been hollowed out. And now you've got, yeah, something that's a lot more, a, a lot closer to the kinds of positions that you might associate with historical fascism, other other things like that. I did um, see uh, Laura Loomer was partying with uh, the Donald the other day. So that's a promising future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like... Again, I think that there are a lot of people that question, do they really mean it or are they just grifting, is, is like a meaningless question. Like it's, yes, <laughs> like to both. And th- those kinds of figures are increasingly prominent now too. Now, for better or worse, Australia's electoral system, compulsory voting, and the fact that executive power is mediated by the parliament, for better or worse, that tends to both drag things to the center which is which is bad i mean you look at the current federal government and you can understand why that 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 has some really bad ramifications right but but it it also i think a parliamentary system can i don't know i i mean i'm not i'm not sort of like this is not me full offering a full-throated defense of the westminster system but like if there is just a two-party system, as there is in the United States, with no real oxygen for anything else, the far right has a very clear project, which is to take over the, the, the right-leaning party of government. And that's what they've done. And I guess they're trying to do that in Australia too, to some extent, or that's always a tension in the Liberal Party. And, and yeah, like moderate liberals don't really exist anymore in, in the same way that they used to. But I, I think there's... Put it this way: There's not the very aggressive dynamic pushing pushing one party who will eventually win another election, a national election, pushing them further and further to the right in a way that's frankly alarming. There's there's not anything I don't think pushing the liberals to adopt like a DeSantis platform, right? Where we're going to like ban gender studies and like I don't know, fly immigrants to New Zealand or something. <laughs> there's not there's not that yet. And it may happen because the other thing about this CPAC thing is that I've said and written this many times before, but you you can see it in action a lot of the time. Australian conservatives really don't have a lot of ideas of their own, and they are very dependent on the ideas that are generated in the United States. And once upon a time, the, the ideas generated in the United Kingdom, maybe that's a little less, there's a little bit less violency in, in terms of UK politics now for them. But and, and in turn, I mean, the, the one thing that they did generate and was more broadly adopted was the treatment of refugees, right? Which is like 
standard operating procedure in a lot of European countries now and, and isn't yet in the US, interestingly, although they're chipping away at it. But yeah, I, I just think there's a, for now, there's a, I always forget which one's centrifugal and which one's centripetal. I think centrifugal, there's, there's more of a, there's more centrifugal force in Australian politics, I think. Whereas the US is like symmetrically pushing one side of politics really quickly into more and more extreme positions. And so CPAC in the US is is more representative of of a tendency that may actually that has power in states and may have state power at the national level sort of any time next November and and they will eventually again have executive power in this country so it's a little different i mean i i, I wouldn't want to be accused of soft soaping the situation in australia which i understand is not great but the dynamic is just slightly different in electoral politics. Jason, you recently wrote an article in The Guardian about Thomas Klingenstein, the far-right financier, giving millions to the Republican Party to fight woke communists. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked into some of these uh, campaign donations? Yeah, look, I am not the only one taking more interest in, in the Claremont Institute. The Claremont Institute is, is a non-profit think tank it's based in Claremont, California. It's been there, oh, I think since the since the sixties. Um, but it's long been home to sort of heterodox thinking on the right, and and thinking that is less. Uh, in the past, at least, they've been less attuned to electoral politics, and more attuned to an intellectual project. And uh, without getting too far into the weeds about it, the idea that, that some ideas about executive power and stuff going back to the Civil War and and like and basically that they've been hewing their they've been what, what's what's the expression? They've been plowing their own furrow for, quietly for, until the Trump era. And the and during the Trump era they really came to the fore and seized intellectual leadership on the right. So Famously, they published the the Flight ninety three election essay by a guy called Michael Anton, who went on to work in the in the Trump White House, and and that case was like, well, Trump sucks, but Hillary would be such a disaster that it's like we've got to seize control of the the plane, and and Trump is the way to do it, like the passengers on Flight ninety three nine eleven did. Like, we we need to heroically intervene to stop stop the country plunging towards disaster, and they, they increasingly became this home for this intellectual current that was pro-Trump, which which seemed like a really wild idea in 2016 because because the Trump campaign did not necessarily seem to be powered by any very complicated ideas. But really what's happened over that that period is that and, and there was a there was a decent enough profile of the of the institution in the New York Times last year where they talked to insiders who had said that basically when Trump came along, they decided to become more attuned to electoral politics and more focused on electoral politics. And they covered the fact that Klingenstein had been not only the board chairman, but the the biggest donor uh, to the Claremont Institute for uh, more than a decade. So so I followed up on that, but I also uh, made the point that he's now actually fairly aggressively making his presence felt as a political donor as well, something that he just really didn't do very much at all before 2020. So since 2020, he's emerged as a a major political donor as opposed to simply someone who's funding the generation of right-wing ideas. So one of the networks he's in, the network of donors around the Club for Growth Action, Political Action Committee, 
He's donated seven million to them since 2020. So he's the fourth largest. I mean, that doesn't mean so. The largest is is donating ten times that. That's Richard Uline, who is a, a billionaire in the Midwest. One of the things he does is sells mail order office supplies for companies, stuff like that. And there's another one, Jeff Yass, who's given fifty one million dollars. Virginia James has given fourteen and a half million dollars. But all of those people, like long standing, big money conservative donors. And the club for growth, as the name suggests, has mainly been about limiting the size of government. Um, but he seems to have attracted them to donate to more, frankly, far-right ideological causes of his. Now, one of the things he's also done over the last couple of years, after being fairly in the background and political in, in terms of electoral politics and even in terms of propagating these ideas that the Claremont Institute generates – He's been pretty in the background, but now he's he came out after Rush Limbaugh noticed this speech he, he did. He, he created his own pack to fund the creation of a number of videos where he was the main speaker. And the the subject is, is really about what he's talking about in the videos is really an all-out war on the left. It's, it's not explicitly eliminationist, like we have to kill them all, but it's, it's saying – we can't live in the same society as these people. Woke, woke communists are going to destroy America. We need to sort of like stamp all of this out. And it's fairly frank in its authoritarianism and in its its intolerance for any dissent from from his version of American history and the, the, the sort of true American way of life and way of thinking. And it's also, he's also very... Yeah, t- talking about woke communists and stuff like that. Like he's he's really characterizing his perceived enemies in the darkest possible terms. And so the worry in the story is that he's entering this network of donors, encouraging them to donate to causes that he's really set up and that he's the, the principal donor for. And he's also happens to be a fund manager. Like he he basically runs sort of a boutique investment fund worth a couple of billion dollars where he invests people's money for them and, and, and makes money for them. So he he perhaps can talk to these kinds of people. And, and the worry is, the worry I got from sources was that maybe he's not only being more explicit about supporting Republicans in electoral contests, but he's also trying to enter this world where he can he can get folks with more money than him to support the kinds of stuff that he wants to do. Jason, just on that Flight 93 paper, mm. I think it's sort of uh, telling – if you follow the metaphor, basically they're saying Democrats getting in was so dangerous that we need to crash the plane into the ground. Yeah. So and, – and that's worth – that's that gives you pause, right? And, and, I mean, I think the thing to say about the, the Claremont Institute and large sections of the right in the US, including people I'm looking at for up, upcoming stories, they're very, very explicitly, frankly, unapologetically anti-democratic, right? They're very keen to portray the left, which which is, is everyone left of Hillary Clinton. You know what I mean? Like, there's no differentiation between the radical left and, and Democrats. And in fact, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories which they present as settled fact about about the Democratic Party giving marching orders to to anti-fascists or to street protesters in 2020, as if they're, they're just the same blob. And they're very frank about seeing all of those people as an internal en- enemy that has to be extirpated from the country. And 
once you're thinking and speaking in those terms, if, if, if Flight 93 is like American liberal democracy, <laughs> which is how a lot of them talk, right? Like we need to, there's only going to be, for a lot of them, there's only going to be an authoritarian resolution for, for all of this stuff. I'm looking at people now who are talking more about the lessons that can be drawn from historical events like the Spanish Civil War and, and the Finnish Civil War, right? Where right-wing authoritarians defeated leftist revolutions and then treated their their perceived internal enemies in pretty brutal ways. And, and I mean, the, the Franco dictatorship lasted for for decades after the Civil War, as you would know. That's like what they're envisioning. They're not I think we're getting to this point because Republicans, and and just to distinguish between Republicans and these right-wing intellectuals for a second, although it's not that much of a meaningful distinction, but Republicans, I think, are starting to realize that it's going to be increasingly difficult for them to to, to win win any semblance of a, a free and fair election, right? It's just going to be harder and harder for them to win electoral majorities because they've so thoroughly backed themselves into into a corner as an ethnic party, a party of white people. So, and no one's actually causing this or orchestrating it. It's no one's plan, but the, the demographics of the country are changing. And, and, and so <laughs> I think that that's one thing that's going on. And, and so... The incentive structure around competing in elections has changed, and you've got these people now who are drawing comparisons with the Spanish Civil War or Finland between the wars. And in both of those cases, there there were actual leftist revolutions, right? (laughs) I I mean, like, there's nothing like that that's happened in the United States. I mean, they're they're talking this way about about, uh, the Democratic Party, which is a center-right party, let's be honest. So yeah, that's dark. And, and, and that talk and that thinking seems to be attracting more and more money, more and more interest. They seem to be building out think tanks and political consultancies and even companies devoted to telling people how they can do do their shopping without giving money to woke companies and stuff. And, and that talk, and there's, again, we've we've been over this situation again and again in our conversations, but there's no one within conservative politics or right-wing politics sort of telling these guys to knock it off, right? I mean, quite the opposite. Anyone who who might be able to do that just has no credibility with anyone in, in, on the right side of politics. So that's, yeah, that, that stuff is getting a little darker and a little bit more prevalent and a little bit more influential since, especially since... January 6th, I think. And and the way in which January 6th has been rewritten as like those people are political prisoners and they've been framed up and maybe the whole thing was an FBI op and all that stuff. Like basically the the the, the restoration of the innocence of all these Jan 6 protesters seems to be a key part of the project as well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like the comparisons with Spain and stuff, the comparison they want to run is that what happened in Spain was really the left's fault because they just tried to discredit every right-wing electoral victory. So in a way, it was, it was the Republic who, that brought itself down. That, that's the arguments I'm seeing run, and that's supposed to be instructive of the present. And I, I'm not an expert on the Spanish Civil War, but I'm not sure if that's the way it went down. <laughs> 
and so there's a there's a view of history that goes along with all of this as well, which is more which is at once broader than what you got from the Christian right and stuff in the nineties. Like that, there appears to be more erudition there in the sense that they're actually talking about the Spanish Civil War, but it seems to be a, a very distorted picture of that. I mean. I don't know what either of you think about that or if you're seeing any of that in Australia specifically as well. Well, it's certainly the case that what animated the right at the time and what led to the coup was the uh, claim that the Republicans had won office in Spain illegitimately. It was an illegitimate government. But the concern was that it was essentially a communist takeover of the country. And so there were all kinds of forecasts of doom, but I mean, it's certainly the case that modern Spain has a long history of quite intense and often bloody class struggle, and this was an attempt by the old regime to reimpose its its order on the unruly workers and peasants, and I mean, the consequences were horrific, obviously, and I'd recommend Paul Preston's book on the Spanish Holocaust if anyone's interested. He's also just recently released another which is examining, I think, the ideological basis for the genocide that followed in the church and, and elsewhere in Spanish society, which I've not read, but looks fascinating. So the same kinds of themes are present, I guess, insofar as there's any equivalent. The closest I could think of in the United States is it seems to be that the labour movement is beginning to take some forms of action, which I think is concerning to many billionaires. But I also wondered in terms of Klingenstein, how, how is he situated in terms of the other billionaires we've read about or heard about that are sponsoring all kinds of right-wing propaganda outlets? Is is he distinctive in some way or just how would you – He's yeah. not He's not quite as rich, I don't think. Like he's not as rich as a Richard Uline. Like when you're getting into tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, he may well be a billionaire. It's difficult to tell and he's not talking to me so <laughs> but i think that he's more of a my read on him is he's someone who can move in that world and talk to those people but he's really more like uh, a professional ideologue that's that's how i see it right now that he's more um like someone who's 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 trying to encourage people like that to, to adopt this more aggressive anti-left form of politics. I, I mean, the, the, the thing is, too, that he's really sharpened something, which a tendency that's been developing for a really long time, which is, gee, when I first moved here in 2013, so 10 years ago, uh, second term Obama, I mean, the right really was talking a lot about about what they called Islamic terrorism or whatever, Islamist terrorism. So terrorist attacks on the United States, maybe by people who live here, maybe by others outside. And, and like the United States was still significantly involved in both Iraq and Afghanistan at that point. And the war on terror, Obama uh, chose not to definitively put an end to that. And so it was still technically going on. And so all of those, the object of fear that the right was really working on was this this spectre of the the Islamic Arab usually terrorist, right? That was the, the boogeyman that they had. They were working really hard. That's ch and that's changed though. 
and I think it changed. It started to change around Ferguson and stuff like that, and and then really accelerated after Trump came to office. Yes, there's still a lot of anti-immigrant talk. That that was a that was a big bugbear back then, and still is the the idea of this the, the the permeable southern border where where people can just stroll through and and start living in America. Like that's still around, but really that they really almost exclusively talk about internal enemies now. It's really changed. It's not an argument between Americans about what the actual dangers are in the world, like climate change versus 9-11 style attacks. On the right, it's really become this idea of the other side of politics. Half the population, give or take, is this existential threat to the country. And and they've really just stopped the right to a large extent, it seems to me, have stopped talking about foreign affairs, unless it's Russia, unless it's like the US should should sort of like stop supporting Ukraine again in its war against Russia. And there's some stuff about China, like China is, is certainly portrayed as a threat, but it almost seems like an afterthought compared to the way that they talk about Antifa or George Floyd protesters, which seems to me to be pretty a pretty lightly coded sort of reference to black people in general. And there's even this weird, it's on the margins at the moment, but there there are signs of this rapprochement between elements of the right and conservative American Muslims who have, there have been instances where conservative American Muslims have, have, have taken power in lo- local municipal elections and have enacted policies that are conservative and are kind of congenial to, to, to a lot of these people. And, and there are people talking about those folks as potential allies in, in the similar way to the, the way they talk about conservative Latinx people as, as conservative Hispanics as, as potential allies. And so that's, that's a big change. And I think it's part of a, a, what I think is a changing of the guard on the American right. I mean, the old-style Christian right, the white evangelical Christian right, are obviously still around and obviously still capable of mobilizing voters. But I think that there was an American nationalism that was still very much in the air when I arrived, which was a loyalty to the American empire, a, a sort of fealty to the American empire's project in the Middle East, and including the defense or sponsorship of, of, of Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and other regional allies against Iran, others. Now, there's when we're talking about someone like Klingenstein and, and the Claremont people and, and I guess the broader network around them, they're either indifferent or hostile to, to that imperial project and ha- tend to have what would once have been called a, a non-interventionist politics. The, the sort of pre-World War II right was was very much like this. They tend to be far less guarded about any anti-Semitic sentiments they might have. They uh, There's a disproportionate sort of number, I think, of traditionalist or anyway, right-wing Catholics, as opposed to evangelical Protestants. And they might have the same similar views on, say, abortion, but it seems, whereas the, the, the evangelical Protestant-dominated Christian right was a little more prepared to look beyond America. I'm not 
none of this is praise necessarily. It's just trying to mark out some differences. They were a little more, they were a little less inclined to just simply say that the that elections were were illegitimate and election and electoral politics was not a useful thing to engage in. A lot of these folks are much more like talking about a Caesar, talking about some authoritarian resolution to, to the problems that they see in the country. And and yeah, they're, if they are American nationalists, it's it's hard. It's easier to see them as 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 racial nationalists a lot of the time who who see who feel like affinity to 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 things like the, the Orbán regime in Hungary and to European far right movements and it's a little less flag wavy because they really see the american the 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 project whatever the american experiment phrases like that they they see that as having failed and and being at an end and and that the country really needs to Klingenstein funds this organization, which I may or may not return to in my reporting, called New Founding. And that, that sounds that's, that's a nice phrase. It sounds like a nice optimistic phrase. But what, what's behind that is they really think that the, the country needs to be re, re-founded or basically re – it needs to be put on a completely different foundation than the one that it's been on since, say, the Civil War, right, with uh, an explicit commitment however imperfectly executed to racial equality and eventually the enfranchisement of, of, of women along with along with black people and and then the ending of this of, of the, the immigration act in the 60s and and the civil rights act in the 60s and the increasing civic freedoms of LGBTQ people and and like just a general greater attention to minority rights I would say that like, you can draw a line from the, civ- the end of the Civil War and especially from the end of World War II to now, and they really just want to unroll a lot of that, unravel a lot of that, and, and they are. I mean, abortion rights have been unraveled. That's no longer a constitutional right. The, the affirmative action has, has, has been basically defined by the Supreme Court as, as racism. <laughs> and, I mean, they're really pushing back aggressively on – Things like voting rights, like in the 1960s, one of the things that happened was that apart from desegregation was an actual effort to make sure that, that the votes of black people in the South were, were not just gerrymandered out of existence. And that's that's being rolled back as well. So it's, it's, it's pointedly reactionary. It's not doing a pantomime of liberalism like, like conservatives since the Second World War sometimes found it necessary to do, to, to characterise their concerns as more about the size of government and about uh, personal freedom. This is much more, yeah, letting women vote was a bad idea. Like, you'll find people saying that in these circles and things like that. And and it's different. Something's changed and it's not, while I'm not suggesting that the Christian right, the old-style Christian right was like, preferable this definitely doesn't seem better (laughs) Mm. Uh, and i i i think that i think that a lot of this is happening in europe as well and i'm not sure if it's happening in quite the same way in australia but i think there are figures there and you'll be able to recall some of them better than me who, who are much more 
in that darker, more authoritarian, more frankly, anti-democratic mode. They may just not have quite as much momentum or money as, as their, their friends over here do. But yeah. Jason, I wanted to ask you, made reference to Antifa previously and did notice that one of Antifa's critics in the Pacific Northwest was in court recently making various claims, but the, the courts were not so persuaded. I'm, I'm wondering if how your colleague, Andy Ngo, is uh, faring in the wake of the, the loss. So it, it's not clear, well, uh, it, I, I think it was, we learned in open court what had long been assumed or rumoured or maybe even reported, I'm not sure, but that Andy doesn't actually live in Portland anymore. He seems to live in the UK, at least some of the time. But that he would explain the accent. Yeah. But he was there for, and he actually, you'll actually see that he appears on a, a lot of pretty dank right-wing podcasts in the UK from time to time. But yeah, Andy commenced his suit, oh boy, in 2020, I, I believe, early 2020. So it's been quite a while. And it's been quite a torturous, torturous route that the case has taken. Originally, he was suing Rose City Antifa and a couple of named activists and a whole bunch of does, John and Jane does. They, 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 they put it that way in complaints if they don't know who they're suing. Over him getting punched and, and milkshaked at a, at a rally in 2019, which made him briefly a, a core celeb on the right. And so he was assisted in bringing suit by someone who I've also done some recent stories on, Hamid Dillon. She's a San Francisco lawyer and a Republican National Committee woman who runs a, a nonprofit called the Center for American Liberty. My reporting, I showed that she funneled $1.3 million from that, from that nonprofit to her own law firm, who was the biggest contractor for the nonprofit, which is generally not the done thing. Anywho, by the time it actually got to trial, though, the, the basis for the suit had changed considerably. And along the way, the judge found that Rose City Antifa was not like a common law entity. Like, there's just not, there's no, there's nothing there to sue, in other words. There's no, well, they just decided that Rose City Antifa did not have a legal existence. It didn't have any member lists, it didn't have any, it hasn't filed any paperwork. They, were, they just could not, and they couldn't serve anyone. So it all became, that that disappeared. And then it wound up in the end that Andy was suing a number of named activists over a completely different two incidents that happened well after that, that incident at the, pro the protest, where one was an altercation between him and a guy called John Hacker in a gym in Portland, and another was during the 2020 protests when he was, according to <clears throat> what went down in the courtroom, he was like chased and had to hide. He was posing as an anti-fascist, <clears throat> and then he was noticed by someone and he had to run and he was chased to his hotel and claimed that he'd been assaulted there. <clears throat> and basically... To the extent that he was able to establish that any of that had happened, he was not able to establish that any of the people he chose to, to bring suit against were liable for anything that might have happened to him in, in those incidents. So, yeah, basically, he tried to sue some people and failed. And, and like, Hamid Dillon has been really good at launching lawsuits in a flurry, getting a whole bunch of publicity, getting on Tucker Carlson's show back in the day. And then some of those cases, especially during the pandemic, she launched a bunch against California Governor 
Gavin Newsom over his pandemic conditions, and most of those were either voluntarily withdrawn or dismissed by a judge, or some small technic some small technicality was proved by her lawyers, but but not, nothing much really came of any of it. So she wasn't anywhere to be seen, nor was anyone from her firm. There were a couple of lawyers representing Andy that used to work for her form, firm. Neither of whom are barred in Oregon. The the lawyer who was barred in Oregon, and you do need at least one, is a guy called James Buchel, who I reported on way back in 2017 as someone who was going to hire the Oath Keepers to protect Republicans participating in local parades and stuff. But he he wasn't anywhere to be seen either. And I just wonder there was a little bit of there was a little bit of commentary from the right in the wake of it, like how it was all a terrible injustice. But uh, I wonder if Andy's day in the sun might have past at this point he certainly i mean part of the rhetorical the rhetoric he was using when the when the when the, the incident at at that protest first happened in 2019 was was like they the the, the tolerant left are beating up a, a gay man because he is he's gay and has been openly gay for the whole time so and and that was the claim like the the the, the left claims to be protective of and supportive of all of these different identity groups and yet they they punched a gay man and and that that worked well for a while but but basically the right in the United States now is 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 absolutely convulsed with full-throated homophobia where people are extremely happy to conflate transgender people with pedophiles to conflate drag queens with pedophiles and like a lot of them are just not too shy about conflating gay people with with pedophiles, and and sometimes gay conservatives get a pass. I mean, no one—I don't think anyone's calling no one relatively mainstream is calling like Dave Rubin a pedophile <laughs> openly, although he's had trouble as well because his boss is now is Ben Shapiro, I think, and he he's appealed to him publicly to like be a bit more understanding about about the fact that Dave Rubin is married to a man and they're going to adopt kids and stuff and it's that that has not gone well. So yeah, it it's like the stars aligned for him for a second there in terms of being a, a person and being in a situation that where the whole right could get behind him, uh, but that I don't know, that moment maybe has passed and I, I as I said I'm not I'm pretty sure he's not living in the country anymore, so we may not hear too much more from Andy, I, I suspect. I think he may have served his purpose. Although he did try and get this concept Trantifar going about a month ago, where he was saying, I mean, I don't know the details, but he was trying to shoehorn his issue, the Antifar thing, into the into the anti-transgender panic. And I don't, I don't think that went very well. I mean, he might have been on Newsmax expounding it, and then that that didn't go too much further. So did the richest man he's in got the a very tight circle. Like, sorry, sorry go Jason, ahead. did the richest man in the world not leap upon this? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. But <laughs> again, I mean, a week later and we're talking about him backing out of a fight with Mark Zuckerberg, right? So <laughs> Elon's attention span is pretty short. I think he seizes on things that in the moment that will get him attention, but I, I'm just not I'm just not sure how broad the commitment is on the right to to Andy's cause specifically. And I mean, Antifa are going to be a perennial bugbear, I think, for these folks now. But they're just a little more focused now on on drag queens and and the fact that trans people exist. 
he had a red hot go at conflating those two things, but it it the the the, the, con, the powers of concentration in in conservative media are, are, maybe are not sufficient to hold those two ideas in their head at the same time. Uh, the the milk may have soured for Andy. What a shame. Well, Jason, yeah. on that note. A cheer, an actually cheery note for change. We will leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. So if people want to find you, of course, you're on X. Uh, I no, am on X. <laughs> you're on Mastodon uh, and you're on Blue Sky. I kind of. I, I think my X uh, bio has all of, all of the relevant links, though. Uh, yeah. I'm Jason underscore A underscore W on, on X. Yeah. On X.com. Well, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Andy, we'll be back next week. We will. See you later. Bye-bye. I tried to explain, but you don't see. No one can give you more love than me. You say you're waiting for just the right one. You'll try to find me when he lets you down. When you find out I was the one. When you find out I was the one. This is the last time I... Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 039068 6036. A 3CR supporter.